This is the Sklo Library Podcast. I'm Ben Drain, and joining us today is author Murmur Blakesley. She'll be speaking with us about writing and the creative process. Murmur is the author of the novels Same Blood, In Dark Water, and When You Live by a River, the nonfiction book A Conversation with Fear, along with countless other essays, poems, and short stories. Murmur Blakesley, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. Having written three novels and a work of nonfiction, what's your approach to writing and the creative process? When I'm writing, I think the best way to do it is just clock in, like you're a plumber or an electrician. (laughs) Um, You clock in, and that way you take out the whole problem of productivity. You don't worry if you're going to be productive. You just clock in, and you have 10.03 that you started. If you have to go to a phone call or you have to break, you clock out. And then at the end, you add up all your minutes. <laughs> okay. And so if I'm writing a prose, I like a four-hour uh, day. Um, m- when I get fit, mentally fit to write, I can write eight, nine hours because I'm into it. I find in the beginning, four hours is good because my writing brain, my imagination turns soft, turns limp after a while. I just don't have the energy to keep going. And then it's sort of a waste of time once you're too tired. Right. Um, Generally, do you you measure by time rather than words or pages or the completion of a scene? Yeah. So if you just clock in, clock out, it's sort of like giving uh, the muse a chance to come. But if you have nothing, um, you don't have to go, oh, my goodness, uh, I could have done the laundry. (laughs) You know, you just think, okay, I put in my time. Nothing came today. It's like planting a a flower that dies. You still are, you know, you're still engaged with the earth. One thing with creative endeavors that I have found is to begin the project as early as possible and proceed with it until I hit that first roadblock. And then rather than fixating on the roadblock, I just step away and go about my life with those seeds planted in my brain. And somewhere in the back of my mind, it's still being worked on. Sometimes it's in the middle of taking a shower or digging a hole for a plant in the garden or driving to work that the next insight might come. And it's frustrating to think that I don't command the time or place that my brain may or may not ever get itself together. But once I learned to embrace that I had no control over it, it was liberating. Although it takes faith that the next step will come and sometimes the next step never does come because you know, it was a dumb idea I was pondering. Yeah, sometimes it can be dumb, but what's so great, um, it, well, first of all, you pick three things that I think are incredibly fertile moments. Shower, digging, and driving. Both of those, I I think I've had some of my best ideas coming during those times, but only if I've put in the time to write.
our listeners who might not be familiar with your work. Can you read us a selection? I could. I could. This is the beginning of When You Live By A River, and it's um, a frontispiece to the first part. When you live by a river, you never ask, what's the worst that can happen? You're always on watch, not on edge, but on watch. Like standing around a cow or a workhorse, if you're what mama calls a big animal person. On account of their size, you stay alert, but easy too. Not like small animal people or what she calls city lurching between too nervous and too carefree. The river, the East Branch, was just a tributary that most of the time meandered along at her own slow pace, here and there soaking a few fields and leaving behind a layer of silt. But any moment she could rise up and show herself to be mighty, what Reverend Sims called the doings of the Lord, but what I called being all only 15 all that ain't me. Digger, who I first knew as Uncle Willis, said I called it that because I was young, still thinking I was the center of things. He was 41 years old and called it the world, but not the world you step over. He said the word hushed like it was holy, his hand rising each time. He meant the world you've got to respond to, the world that comes and shapes your life and everyone else's. Even though Digger was a man of religion, quoting out of the book, he didn't see eye to eye with Reverend Sims and wouldn't go to church. He said the Reverend treated God like one big holier-than-thou shine who blinded out everything else. And Digger's God didn't shine. He stepped right in with the others, the river when it moved mighty. The world all hushed in what Digger called death, God speaking. Thank you. You write about rural life in the Catskills. What are some of the ways in which local inspiration manifests itself? We live pretty close to the reservoir. Uh, one of the nine reservoirs that feed New York City. And there's a lot of hatred toward the city here. And part of it comes from so much of the Catskills and this area being um, kind of a mini diaspora, really. 900 families had to lose not just their farm that they had for generations, just in this one reservoir not just their homes, but their whole communities. So it was really uh, interesting to read about the 30s and how tight they were as a town. And then to, to know that the New York City came in and said, you're out of here and we'll give you almost no money for everything you, you, not just your land, but your livelihood, everything you know. I was driving by the reservoir. I was looking at the reservoir and I thought, my next novel's under there. So, when you live by a river. We will be back with author Murmur Blakesley in a moment.
In most podcasts, you would now be listening to an advertisement. At Sklo Library, though, we have no interest in pushing you a product. We just look to nurture our culturally rich life throughout central Pennsylvania. As a point of embarkation for All Lands Fictional, we bring you Underwriters from Fiction. Promotional consideration for this episode is brought to you by One Hour Hot Dog. People will wait for something good. You can see the world premiere of the new One Hour Hot Dogs Fun on a Bun ad campaign this Thursday night on Hypnotoad's Robonica Spectacular. If what I just said strikes you as absolute nonsense, that's okay. We welcome your own brand of nonsense. If you have an underwriter from fiction you would like to see sponsor the show, send your advertisement copy to bdrain at sclolibrary.org. That's B-D-R-A-I-N at sclolibrary.org. We're back talking with author Murmur Blakesley. Murmur, can you talk a little bit about creativity versus writing craft and the internal battle between artist and editor? There's this creative time, which is generating, and the generating process needs a lot of freedom. What I'm there for is just to put in that, that freedom to allow myself to do something. Um, Wendell Berry said something really fantastic. Um, He wrote, there are, it seems, two muses, the muse of inspiration, who gives us inarticulate visions and desires, and the muse of realization, who returns again and again to say, it is yet more difficult than you thought. This is the muse of form. may be then that form serves us best when it works as an obstruction to baffle us and deflect our intended course. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. I hate the word journey, but other than that, I love this. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. Isn't that fantastic? The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. It's pretty cool. As um, the one who I, is frequently baffled, I definitely <laughs> respond to that. Yeah, I know. I, it's so hard uh, in anything to have that angst, that uncertainty. But I think getting used to that is part of just the creative process just getting used to you know having no clue what you're doing and and also working something over and over in your mind hearing you say that i'm just now realizing a theme in your work in your nonfiction book a conversation with fear your thesis is that fear is not something to be ignored pushed aside or dominated but rather something to accept and come to terms with It strikes me that much of that also applies to any creative process, that we all live with inspiration and the lack of it. We have moments of insight and brilliance, of focus to be able to edit effectively, or when just the right word pops into our minds. But it's not something that happens on our demand, that cares about our timetables, or is something that we can wield as we like. There's two things you said that were uh, very important. One is that it's not governed by your ego. If you sit down to write the great American novel, you really probably won't. 
<laughs> right? There, you know, you'll start and you'll think, well, this isn't good enough. <laughs> and it isn't, <laughs> you know, that's not the way it works. And, and you can't just say, okay, now I'm going to do it. I'm going to turn it on. This is different. This is something you don't have a lot of control over. And there's a surrender involved. And it's funny that you brought up a conversation with fear because that's, um, that's about skiing. And I, I work with the same idea between skiing and writing. And I got it from the writing world. And that is an idea of lowering the task lowering your expectations i and what that does is it it ameliorates the impact of your ego that came actually from william stafford um talking about a writer's block in poetry saying uh lower your standards if you can't write write a poem he wrote a poem every single day if he didn't write a good poem he didn't, he's, you know, uh, Tobias Wolf said the same thing, except that you go write a lot of bad stuff, <laughs> you know, like, so that takes the ego out of it. And that's part of why I say four hours a day, just, just sitting there. You can sit there for four hours a day. I have never found that I could sit for four hours without writing something, right? So for our listeners, maybe advice would be, don't sit down to write the great American novel, but sit down to write. Yeah. And you can give yourself a prompt, one one that was good uh, for a lot of people, is to pick something that you want to describe and just describe it. You choose something and you can walk around or go outside or whatever and you, then you just sit down to describe it and that again it's like digging or taking a shower or driving it deflects your mind and you just instead of thinking of yourself oh what great idea do i have within me to write you you're actually deflecting onto an object or a bird or whatever and you say wow, can I write this accurately? Can I describe this beautifully? And often that leads to quite a lot, even like maybe a bird inside you that's trying to get out. I mean, you know, you you don't know where it's going to go, but at least you've given yourself an in. What you just said reminds me of what poet Richard Hugo wrote about poetry writing in his book, The Triggering Town, that many poems can be said to have two subjects, one of which is the initial subject that the author may be aware of, and then there's the revealed subject, which is discovered or created through serendipity in the act of writing, and maybe totally unknown to or unintended by the author. Yeah, yeah, you, but once you, once you put your attention wholly on an object, it starts to call forth in you a response to the world. And what a better way to enter into writing, which is, having the world call you. Can you share a few thoughts on transitioning from the imaginative stage of writing to refinement and editing? You start that, that generative process, that, that, that first flush of, of 
inspiration uh, happens in a very internal state. And that's why remember you said something like it could be a terrible idea. Yeah. But it's very internal. It makes so much sense to you, you know, and you're, you're, it just sounds like, you know, God coming to your window, you know, <laughs> it just sounds so wonderful. And then you read it to someone and they have no clue what you're saying. Yeah. It's very important. But I think that I have made mistakes in the past of reading things too early to people. Um, like, um, oh, Oh, someone said, um, I think I might have this here too. Edna O'Brien said, for me to write, I have to be one alone and two, know that nobody is going to question me. I write the way a thief steals. It's a little covert. Fantastic. I feel that there's a solitude you need in the beginning of writing. You need to know that, you know, you can write, I didn't say it. Yes. You can write crap nobody don't care nobody knows you you're there you're going with it and then you can start to bring it out and i think a very supportive group is good at first and yeah you know your wife <laughs> your husband <laughs> your mother you know very supportive and then go and then you go there and then into larger and larger audiences until you feel it's ready for the editor the mm -hmm. second voice the you know um very that that gives you the distance mm -hmm. that you need i found the first step which things rarely get past is just my own brain the next day Wake, having slept, waking up, thinking, yeah. you know, just I have the same perspective, the same experiences, but on today, I look at it. If it still holds up, then we can move forward, but it might be, yeah. Always. That's always the case. Things are hot. Um, people always say, put it in a drawer and let it cool down. You know, you're just, and, and the internal voice is, is taking you. You get it, you see the next day on paper and you're going, doesn't have any rhythm what was i thinking <laughs> it's, it's clunky it's like i don't know who who wrote that so aliens have landed and they are trying to puzzle out what earthlings are all about what book do you recommend to them and why i thought about this and i thought i could never recommend one book because I can never recommend one of anything. I, you know, my favorite flower is the one I'm looking at. You know, it's, it, I can't, uh, my favorite book is the one I'm reading. Um, but I decided, I thought about this question and just, I did more than refusing to answer in my head. I also thought I would recommend fiction, not nonfiction. And the reason is, is because I feel like fiction needs a champion, but also because it's about getting into another character for 20 hours. Not even a movie gets, you know, it's 20, maybe, I don't know, I'm a slow reader, 10, 20 hours, you're inside a character or a bunch of characters. So I thought, first of all, I couldn't do one book. But I could definitely say Middle March, George Eliot's Middle March, because that's of a whole town, and you start to see how all the characters work together. And then I thought, well, you, you can't just have one culture. 
so how about um, how about also Toni Morrison, fiction by Toni Morrison. I right now I've decided to start Toni Morrison right from um, the beginning and read her in chrono, uh, chronological order. Um, then I thought, okay, well then maybe you have to read fiction from all over the world, and so you get a you know. So I would give a bunch of books, um, but I think fiction would be great to start with. Great. The imagination and the internal life yeah and not they as so much the intellect i sorry the intellect in a different way yeah, yeah. well you you bring up an interesting point that you know the theory of the mind of i know what i think but being able to get into someone else's eyes and view things from their point of view is a yeah. important step in sentience that is inherent in fiction in a way that is not in nonfiction. So uh, Mary Gordon wrote an incredible article, uh, essay in The Atlantic called Moral Fiction. And it was about um, how the morality of fiction is not direct. It, it, uh, it, you should not feel it's polemical. I mean, if you feel the morality of a, fic of a fictional piece, it's probably not good fiction. <laughs> But it's, it's cultivates morality by being indirect and oblique just because of what you said by by moving into other characters especially characters you abhor or are evil but by being inside them a bit you you stretch your compassion and your empathy and it cultivates that ability to understand the other so i think fiction is more important for our time now than ever Murmur Blakesley, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. That was fun. Author Murmur Blakesley also brings us this episode's poetry nightcap. This is Learning to Love September. Once it was the month you didn't return to college, lingering in the aisles at the office supply. Now it's the month you can't harvest the corn. What you meant to plant is not in the ground. The children you love are all grown, even the ones you never had. You wander through fields while the light still lasts. Jewelweed, asters, grasses, and goldenrod. Gentians that never intended to open. This podcast was produced by Sklo Center Region Library. Special thanks to our guest, Murmur Blixley. If you want to learn more about Murmur and her work, you can check her out at murmurblakesley.com. As an aside, if you are at all interested in gardening, I would recommend checking Murmur out on the Facebooks, as you will see some really great garden photography. And to grow all that in rocky Catskill soil, honestly, it's a little appalling. 
While you're online, head over to sclolibrary.org to see all the happenings. That's S-C-H-L-O-W library.org. I'm Ben Drain, your old friend and erstwhile companion. Take care until we meet again. <laughs>